You're listening to another episode of the Zag Ecrisobe here. Excited to be joined by a very recently graduated fellow in the Silicon Valley chapter. Jake is here. He's going to give us the scoop about what's going on in Northern California and also a little bit about some things he's been talking to people about recently. So let's get to it. Jake, anything surprise you about the NLC fellowship since you just finished it? Surprise me. Oh, um, it was definitely surprising to know how little I knew was really going on in the city of San Jose in the <laughs> progressive space. Uh, so it was really exciting to just get to know people and have an opportunity to take some steps into areas that of progressive activism that I really hadn't touched. You know, I'd been involved in the environmental space for quite a long time, but reaching into, you know, labor organizing or, you know, migrant justice, all that sort of stuff was really powerful. And I learned a lot. And then what do people misunderstand about San Jose, right? People think of the Bay Area, they think of San Francisco, Oakland, or someone says Silicon Valley, they have preconceived notions, I'm sure. But yeah, what do people usually get wrong about San Jose as a, as a place, as a city? So we're actually the third biggest city in California, 10th biggest city in the country. So we're bigger than SF and Oakland uh, in size and population, which is very interesting to a lot of people because you would think with that size comes kind of some tourist um, motivation. People will come down and that's really not been the case. So the city of San Jose has been struggling for decades to try and figure out how to put itself on the map, so to speak. Uh, and even though we're just right here in Silicon Valley, we've got you know companies like Adobe and Intel and HP. Um, the Apple, Google kind of stuff has really pushed everybody into the thought that Silicon Valley is Palo Alto and Mountain View. Um, and we're... It's bigger than that. There's just so much that's going on down here. Um, The kind of way that San Jose was put on the map was through um, mercury mining. They were using it to get um, to help mine for silicone so that they could put it in all the computer chips and stuff. So um, it started as like a mining and farming uh, town didn't really intend to be a city, but now you have this really awesome mix of, you know, um, Chicano, Chicano labor culture and, you know, mixing in with the tech boom. It has its issues, but it's also makes for a very cool environment. Yeah. I'm sure to some degree you are facing the same challenges we are when it comes to, say, affordable housing or trying to sort out transportation issues, you know, what do you feel like is top of mind for folks in the city right now? It's definitely, you know, affordable housing. And we have a major homelessness crisis here. We jumped up 42%, I think, in the last two years from 2017. Um, It's on everybody's minds. And there are not a lot of innovative solutions out there. Uh, We get stuck in the same conversation that everybody does is, do you push for you know, rent control and more affordable housing, or do you just try and spur you know, market rate development? And we're having trouble 
actually being productive because that conversation just goes back and forth for way too long. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Um, and a quick aside, you can do both. So I think given the crisis we're in, definitely do both those things. Yeah. Hey, listen, um, we want to have you on because you, you were able to give a, a, a talk to the NLC folks on public banking. I uh, wanted to hear a little bit of why you landed on that topic for your for your talk and, and how you felt like things went. Yeah, I, I was definitely a little more nervous that it's a talk that I've given with like control of a PowerPoint slide <laughs> and, you know, open dialogue where people can ask questions halfway through. So the NLC structure for the Spark Talk was a new space for me, but I thought it went really well. Um, everybody, you know, was excited about the topic. Got a, It was a progressive space. So people had already known a little bit, which let me have a little more freedom in what I got to say. But I jumped into public banking through the divestment movement. So I spent you know a week in North Dakota at Standing Rock, you know, drove out with my mom from you know, the Bay Area here with some supplies, sleeping bags, food, you know, uh, donations that uh, they were asking for. And then we got caught in a blizzard. It gave me the opportunity to learn even more about you know what the indigenous community was doing and what they were trying to push for, especially you know being an ally that didn't live there. So I came home and got really involved in, you know, pulling individual money out of banks that were funding fossil fuels, specifically the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and when I had, you know, made sure that my mom did it and you know, my 401k was divested, <laughs> the next step was, well, where do I have influence? Where do I have power to say this is also my money? And it ended up being tax dollars. So kind of through that space and, you know, a podcast um, that I listened to where Ralph Nader talked about public banking, um, connected some dots where not only was I passionate about, you know, um, environmental justice and being an ally to our indigenous communities here in the United States and across the globe, but it, it could make ties to, you know, the prison industrial complex, where our city's tax dollars sitting in banks that fund private prisons um, or immigration detention centers. You know, there are just so many reasons why we can look to a finance industry for deciding what is a good investment and what is a profitable investment and where that line really is for our communities. And I thought a public bank would be a good option for us to push for. Yeah, before we get into a little bit more on public banking as a concept, when you were doing your your research or studying divestment in general, you know, is there a, a moment in history that is lifted up as an example of divestment really working? Is it something like apartheid in South Africa, and, or is it something else? And maybe a quick follow up to that would be, you know, I feel like divestment is is getting to be a complicated political topic right now with the BDS movement, um, those kind of things going on with. Israel and West Bank and those kind of things. So what, how does all that kind of fit together in, in what you're considering? Yeah, so the example that is held up is South Africa. Um, and that's not only because it was one of the times where it very dramatically worked, but it also shows you the transition of what a divestment movement looks like, where you have a lot of 
pushback and where the industries might ignore you. And it takes a long time to get governments on board. But once you get you know, governments on board, companies you know, follow suit. Um, the other, I guess, less effective example is when people talk about Nazi Germany, you know, companies um, that continued to do business with uh, the German government despite you know, the U.S. sanctions and all that. So it's never, nothing's ever cookie cutter and we can't take what worked for, you know, the South African uh, divestment movement and pop it into fossil fuels today. But knowing that there's more of um, a connection between the steps forward, local government, national government, then companies and um, the way our global economy works, it's the companies that really affect um, the local government on the other end that you're trying to influence. Uh, it's been interesting following that into what BDS has tried to do and um, where they're still in a stage where they get pushback from our government, right? There's been a couple of lawmakers that have introduced legislation trying to make it illegal to boycott Israel and Israeli companies um, as a U.S. citizen. So I think part of that is because they see somewhat of a successful historical backlash, either now with the population of divestment through you know fossil fuel and environmental movement, but um, also because I, I do think it's effective currently in you know Israel, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we come back. We'll talk a little bit more about public banking and also a little bit more about the NLC life up in San Jose and Silicon Valley. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Zag. We'll be right back. Jake, if, if somebody says they're opposed to public banking, I don't know if you ever hear that, but if they do, what are the reasons someone might be opposed to public banking? The opposition is very much about risk. So we get people that think it's too much responsibility to give to a local government to run their own financial institution. And to be honest, I hear that from people who preface that opinion with, I used to work in the banking industry. It's more complicated than you think. Um, Isn't that part of the problem though? Which, that you, it shouldn't be as complicated as people are making it in the banking industry? That is definitely part of it. And I also think, it, to be honest, there's a little bit of ego in there. Um, it, the way a public bank would work is we would hire people with finance and banking backgrounds to work for our local government. Like if they're currently working for the private sphere and they move to the public sphere, it's not like we lost any information. Things didn't become any riskier or less risky. And who is managing your money? We just get to change their motivation. So it, when you look at what's really risky about our financial markets, it's profit, like profit maximization. When people are greedy and have a bottom line to reach, they make riskier investments and they put other people's money on the line. And so to be honest, when you take that motivation and turn it down to the point where you just want to make healthy investments in your community with you know healthy long-term 
returns that don't have to maximize profit for your shareholder in the next six months or year and a half, your decisions are entirely different and they're way less risky. We can, so it, it's never been a, an opportunity that I've had where I get to respond to some of the main comments that come through like debate in, at city council or um, on other podcasts that I listen to. But in person, it's usually like, what would you rather have to manage risk? A group of individuals and companies that have already crashed the economy and, and the global economy in 2008 and a few times before that and are where we see a looming one coming you know, on the horizon or a group of people that have your community's best interest in mind. So, And then this issue, I think it's picked up a little bit of steam. I know AOC has talked about it on her Twitter feed and it, it's, I think it was on the ballot in 2018 down here um, with a resolution. I think the resolution was just like to study the concept. I don't think there was much beyond that. Is there anything we should be watching either in the state or nationally to kind of keep track of this issue? Yeah, so at state, we have some exciting news. We just, with AB 857, um, made it out of Senate appropriations. So we're headed to the Senate floor next week and then the assembly to approve some of the amendments from the Senate. So we're on the edge of making this a reality for a legal reality for many cities and counties in the state. What AB 857 is, is, pardon me, is setting up a framework so that cities and counties have an avenue through the Department of Business Oversight to apply to create this banking institution and then receive a licensed charter. Um, So it doesn't create any banks. It allows our local governments to take the next step in creating their own. Nice. We'll definitely keep an eye on that. Hey, last thing, you know, we're in prime recruitment season for next year's NLC class. Any plugs or anything you would want people to know who are considering turning in an application for the 2020 NLC Institute? I would just, if there are people from Silicon Valley, from San Jose listening, um, I hadn't known about NLC until like, a week and a half before the application deadline. And I am super excited that I was able to fit in my application and and be accepted. It was an experience that connected me with so many people that I don't think I ever would have been able to meet or, you know, maybe would have taken me another three, four years of organizing here in the South Bay. Um, So just for that alone, like new friends, with passion to make the world a better place. It's an amazing program, but then you get to learn on top of it. You know, um, I think that's really where we have a major connection as a cohort, you know, as NLC is it's, it's people that in our millennial generation have the same idea where we don't know everything, but we get to learn from each other, right? National convention was amazing because the people that are doing the presentations are then in the audience for somebody else's presentation. It's not about bringing in so many experts, you know, people that have major name recognition and fancy titles. It's community-based learning. And that's what I loved about it. Awesome. And if you're listening, you can complete an application 
before October 1st. That's the deadline. You can find that app on pretty much any NLC chapter's Facebook page here in Los Angeles or Silicon Valley or really anywhere, or you can find it on the NLC webpage at newleaderscouncil.org. And if you want to hear more about all the other people who've done NLC in the past, catch up on all the past episodes of The Zag. There's over 140. You can get those all the places where you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. They're all there. Thanks for listening to this episode. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.